as well as Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism is continuing to teach on the sacrament of Lord's Supper. And that is indeed what we will hear tonight is instruction, teaching. There is a necessity to look at the history behind these documents. There is a necessity to understand the the issues that were going on. There are times when it's, it's a bit more didactic, as it were, instructional than it is um, uh, something that we would consider uh, inspirational, perhaps. And yet, as we hear the Word, uh, and as we're reminded of the Word and its teaching, it is to lead us to a greater appreciation of who God is. And Paul is doing that as he writes to the Corinthians. There is Uh, commendation, and there is also instruction as he speaks to uh, the members of the church in Corinth. It is necessary that we are instructed in uh, the teachings of the Lord. If they needed it that closely to the apostles in those days, that that few years in the time of the apostles, then how much more today do we need to continue to be instructed uh, in the faith and in particular tonight, the sacrament of Lord's Supper. There are many problems in Corinth. They're, uh, they're in the days of the Apostle Paul. They had divisions. They had moral and ethical uh, problems. They had issues surrounding marriage and divorce. They had issues understanding food offered to idols and what that would look like in the life of the church. And they had disorder in worship as well, including in their view and uh, understanding and practice of Lord's Supper, which we will look at Uh, In particular tonight, Paul speaks to them uh, favorably. Verse 2 of chapter 11 says this, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. He says, uh, for this I am thankful. But at the same time, he goes on to discuss those things that need correction, that need uh, to be looked at carefully. And so that's where we pick up our reading tonight. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is writing uh, to these believers and where God speaks to us this evening, for this is indeed the Word of God. Paul writes, In the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have fallen asleep or have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So far, the reading of God's own holy word may add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it this evening. Beloved in the Lord, it is important that we are continually corrected by the word of God, for our traditions can quickly become detached from their biblical teaching, their biblical foundation. Paul's words gave correction to the Corinthians, but they're for the saints throughout the ages. Specifically for Corinth, Paul was saying, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That's a pretty heavy statement. We might not like such a statement if it was spoken to us, and yet it is God's word Here, as Paul speaks to the Corinthians, and he warns that they are coming together, and it is not pleasing to the Lord the way that they come together. He indicates that they're divided, verse 18. Some are going ahead uh, and eating without others. One uh, One goes hungry, another gets drunk. They're not celebrating the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 20. What you what you tell yourselves is a celebration of the sacrament is not the celebration of the sacrament. You are not acting in keeping with our Lord's instruction. They weren't discerning the body of Christ, he says in verse 29. They're sinning against Christ, verse 27. When this happens in the church, correction must be given. The word of God is above all and is to give us correction. Specifically tonight, The word concerning Lord's Supper. What is happening? What should we think of Lord's Supper? We looked last week at what, how we are to understand Jesus' words figuratively. Tonight, looking at how the Lord's Supper, our understanding of Lord's Supper, differs from Roman Catholic Mass. But before we get there, the catalyst that led to the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism was that very issue, the Lord's Supper. If there would not have been this, this great division on this particular topic, this particular doctrine, the Heidelberg Catechism may not have been written. Frederick III wanted to unite the Protestant churches. And there was a great uh, disagreement on the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So he commissioned this catechism to be written, and they the authors of the Catechism, Ursinus and Olivianus, wanted to be sure that the readers, that indeed all believers, would understand what the Lord's Supper was about. And they declared, in, or they wrote in this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 30, who should come to the table of the Lord? And that's where we're going to begin this evening, question answer 81. 
question, who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Paul warned it was possible to partake in the Lord's Supper in such a way as to bring judgment upon oneself. Indeed, he says, we are being judged. Some are weak and ill and some have died. This is no small thing to come to Lord's Supper. It is a significant event and it is not something we should take lightly. Question answer 82 asks, or question 82 asks, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. This is not a common meal to be treated lightly, but a meal given by Christ for the one who trusts in him and seeks to live for him. Look with me first at the background of this particular Lord's Day, and we're going to be moving into question and answer 80. The Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper can be distinguished into three parts. The first set of questions and answers, 75 to 77, are those which speak of what the Lord's Supper signifies and seals. The second set of questions and answers, 78 to 80, speak of the nature of Christ's presence in the supper. The third set of questions and answers, questions and answers 81 and 82, speak of the issue or or talk to the issue of the proper recipients of the sacrament and the need for church discipline in excluding unbelieving and unrepentant persons from participation. Quite a history behind the Heidelberg Catechism. We won't go into all of it tonight. I'll try to give the abbreviated version In Heidelberg, at the time of the writing of the Catechism, there was a large Roman Catholic population. It was not until Frederick III became ruler of the Palatinate in 1546, the same year that Martin Luther died, that he declared that region to be Protestant. And as such, he wanted unity amongst all of those who were calling themselves Protestants. And one of the biggest dividers in the church was that the debate of the presence of Christ in Lord's Supper. Lutherans and Reform could not agree as to how Christ was present. We looked at that a bit last week. One of Frederick III's principal motives then, as I've already said, was that this catechism that would be commissioned would be commissioned to deal with this issue, to address this issue. The importance of the doctrine of Lord's Supper and the Heidelberg Catechism is affirmed or confirmed by this, question answer 80 was added. It wasn't there in the first edition. And you say, well, wait a minute, how, how long did that, how long was that the case? Not very long. A few months after the first edition, this question and answer was added to the catechism. And it reads as follows. 
How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Well, there have been, there's been quite a bit of discussion surrounding the wording of question answer 80 in recent years, even in certain Reformed denominations. Some have decided that question answer 80 is not confessionally binding for its officers. And some have even suggested that it ought to be removed from the catechism or at least put in parentheses. But I think tonight we need to understand, I want to present to you that this needs to be kept in the catechism. The reason for that is the Reformed view and the Roman Catholic view continue to differ, and quite dramatically. We're talking about matters of soteriology, salvation, how one is saved. And it is of utmost importance that we understand just how that happens, that our faith might be focused in the right place, that it might might not be shaken, by other teaching. Look at the doctrine of question answer 80 with me as we go through this together. First, the answer there, answer 80 says, the Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. He accomplished it once for all on the cross not to be repeated at the Lord's Supper as though a sacrifice needs to be repeated. It's once for all. Further, it says, the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ's body by faith through the Spirit, bringing us to heaven where he is bodily. Where is Christ? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. We could look at various passages. That's not the heart of this Lord's Day. Stephen looks up, he sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. We hear of other passages which speak of that. Paul himself speaks of that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. We await a Savior from there who is Christ the Lord. He says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 that we are to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, where He is interceding for us. The Roman Catholic Church, in their teaching on the Mass, on the other hand, says something quite different. Going on in question and answer, or answer 80, We read there that the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered by the priests daily. 
they, that is the Roman Catholic Church, continues to teach that the Mass is principally a sacrifice. It's an unbloody sacrifice, but it is a sacrifice nevertheless. It's one that needs to be offered by the priests again and again. A direct attack upon the sufficiency of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross for believers. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, and as you think about that, what Hebrews says, remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. The Bible teaches that, there he teaches that Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. The righteous for the, uh, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Then in Hebrews chapter 10, we read these words. Christ came, ushering in that new covenant, and as such, He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And he's speaking of the old system when he says this, and every priest stands daily at at his service, this Old Testament rendering, Old Covenant, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice... Note, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is a once-for-all sacrifice not to be repeated and certainly not to be administered by priests. For it is Christ's sacrifice to God that we remember, that nourishes our faith. Roman Catholic Church teaches that the sacrifice is offered by priests and is propitiatory. That is, it serves as satisfaction to God for sin. The Bible teaches that Christ offered himself, offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for sinners. Hebrews 9, 14. Roman Catholic Church teaches the Mass is an important part of the process whereby Believers are justified and made holy and acceptable to God. Note that wording. It's an important part of the process whereby believers are justified and made holy and acceptable to God. The Bible teaches that the believer is justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. That one sacrifice, not the daily or continual offering of the priest. Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. This is not taught in God's word when he speaks, this is my body, this is my blood. He's speaking figuratively as we saw last week. But it is that last phrase that troubles people. That last phrase, or perhaps the last paragraph, but particularly that last phrase of answer 80. Yet it is a confessional document. We would expect that we would not only state what we believe, but what we stand opposed to, or what is not in keeping with right teaching. So it ought not to surprise us. It says there, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. It's not an attack on any person, it's a clear delineation from a teaching that is not in keeping with what we believe. In this case, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. 
why have, some, why have certain Reformed denominations declared question answer 80 non-binding or at least secondary in nature? Well, a review of the study committee's report does little to convince the reader that the Roman Catholic Church's teaching has changed at all. In fact, their study committee report would indicate that it's the same that it has always been, and therefore it still remains opposed to what the Protestant Church teaches and believes, particularly the Reformed. Therefore, this teaching and this warning remains necessary. When the study of the a review of the study committee was, uh, was undertaken by one of our ministers, his conclusion was this. It seems that the language more than the content is the issue at this, uh, at this question and answer. The content of the question and answer keeps the biblical understanding of Lord's Supper in front of us. And if language is the issue, perhaps a change in wording would help without removing the content. And this was a suggestion. There's no decision to change the wording of question and answer 80, but this perhaps is maybe helpful to us. He says of that last paragraph, a suggestion, the Mass in effect denies the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and is a form of idolatry. Again, because the teaching remains the same in the Roman Catholic Church and the teaching remains the same in Reformed churches, there is a divide, and we have to acknowledge that. And therefore, we ought to live in keeping with what we believe the Scripture to be teaching. Well, the Lord's Day also deals with who may come to the table. And there are in these other two questions and answers, there's a look at the individual believer, and there is a, a call to the church, that, to the institution that administers uh, Lord's Supper. We want to look at that now. There's a clear proclamation in this Lord's Day, a comforting word for the believing sinner, a call to live a life of loving obedience. Question 81, as to who should come, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. A separate calls for individual examination. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, let those who come examine themselves, lest they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Consider what is taking place and consider your heart's attitude in coming. Do you have in the coming to Lord's Supper some sense that, well, I'm keeping Lord's Supper. That is part of my part of the, that's my end of the bargain. I'm doing this. I'm being faithful. And therefore, God recognizes this and says, yes, that is one of my own. That's not what the Lord's Supper is for. The Lord's Supper is to bring us to Christ that we might see in him all that we need. But it is to be our desire to come. It is to be our desire to see Christ, to taste Christ in partaking of the sacrament. 
Paul was saying to the Corinthians in the earlier chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, that they were sharing and they were participating in other sacrifices, food offered to idols. And the understanding was that as you partake of that food, you are also participating in that religious ceremony. Your allegiance is divided. You are worshiping those idols at whose ceremonies you are eating. He says, you must examine yourselves. You can't do both. You cannot partake in that as well as partake in Lord's Supper without a divided worship, which is sinful and would bring discipline. The sacraments, which the earlier Lord's Days of this particular section have already stated, the sacraments are used by the Holy Spirit to confirm in our hearts the very faith produced there by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. That's what question answer 65 says. Sacraments point us to the Gospel, which points us to Christ. They are not to be mocked or violated. Refusal to recognize sin and to see Christ alone as sufficient for salvation is another Gospel. It's another means of salvation. Another idea. He says there in verses 28 and 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, that a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Only after examination. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Whatever else was in the minds of the participants, there certainly was a failure to recognize their need of Christ. Their focus to be on Christ alone. A failure to see equality among them. The rich were eating and leaving the poor to fend for themselves. There was a lack of a understanding of equality before the cross. That in Christ, there is uh, uh, the rich and poor are become brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Yet they were showing divisions. They were showing favoritism. In this answer, what we hear in this answer 81, what we hear is, is an echo of question answer 2. Perhaps you saw that or could hear that. What does it say in question and answer 2 of the catechism? It says, what things must you know to live and die in the joy of the comfort of belonging to Christ? First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sin and misery. And third, how I'm to thank God for this deliverance. Well, it's right there in question answer 81. It says, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin. So there's the acknowledgement of how great our sin and misery are. But who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. There's the salvation, how God sets us free from that sin. And who also then desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. That idea of how I am show, to show my thankfulness to God for what he has done for me in Christ. Those who come to the table must reflect upon those things. We should not come with a heart filled with contempt for others or with frivolity but, or with any mystical notion of what this does as pertains to our obedience before God, but an appropriate measure of faith and humility with a celebrative and grateful attitude. 
Paul mentions in this matter of examination, or this, he mentions this matter of examination to the Corinthians elsewhere. He says, test yourselves to see that you are of the faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He wants us to understand that there is examination. We don't come mindlessly. We don't come thoughtlessly. We don't come without giving proper reflection upon our hearts and upon what God is offering to us in the sacrament of Lord's Supper. And then as we examine ourselves and as we see the greatness of Christ, then our, we, leave for, we leave that celebration of the sacrament with a, with a desire to want to live for the Lord, to show our gratitude, show our love rather, in gratitude and grateful obedience. And that's what we see uh, here. So awareness of our sin the depth of our sin, the beauty of Christ's sacrifice, then leads to an increasing desire, as the catechism writers put it here, a desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life, to focus there upon Christ. Jesus gives many examples of those who did not understand how one is right with the Lord. One was the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the story. The Pharisee thought himself righteous before the Lord because he was not like other men. And he thanked the Lord that he was not like other men, that he was much better. And what does Jesus say? He says, that one did not go home justified. It was the one who instead said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show your grace. Show the richness of your mercy. And we know where that grace is found. But God who is rich in mercy has made us alive with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. That in Him we might have eternal life. That then for the individual. Then question and answer 82 who are those who have no part in the body of believers, those who refuse to submit to God and His means of grace, who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist spoke very uh, bluntly and powerfully about that in Luke chapter 3. He came to the, those who were coming to him. He said, why are you coming to me to be baptized? Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Show that you are connected to the vine of the Lord Jesus Christ by the life that you live. Live for the glory of God, not for the praise of men. Show that your nourishment is from God and through His Son and not resting upon your works and your doing. The axe is laid at the root of the tree, he says. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those who are united to Christ bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The promise of forgiveness is not given to those who profess or show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly. That's what the question 82 says. And the answer says, should, this be admit, should they, those be admitted? No. That would dishonor God's covenant, bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Then Lord's Day 31 talks about discipline, which we will take up the next time We're together looking at the catechism. The attitudes of hypocrisy and penitence and unbelief lead to ungodliness of life. Such a person should not be admitted to Lord's Supper. This would be to make a mockery of the sacrament. Would dishonor God's covenant promises. Those who are obstinate and unrepentant 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. And God is, and Christ has given the keys to the church to protect the church. I think of examples of those who were in the covenant community, but those who were put out of the covenant community. They were in the covenant community, though they were not living as covenant members. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, we can think of. We can think of uh, um, Achan, and we can think of others. Hymenaeus and Alexander, Diotrephes, the New Testament. The Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people until they reform their lives. This is the task given to the church of Christ, to her leaders, and that is why we pray for discernment, for wisdom, that God would lead, that there would be clear understanding concerning God's word and the way that God's people ought to live, that there would be courage and concern for the holiness of God's church. And we say, well, now wait a minute, who's, who's able to come you're saying that if you're holy enough? Well, no one is able to come on their holiness. We are invited to come through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the offered body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to submit to him as Lord. As the psalmist said in Psalm 16 tonight, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my master. You call me to come and I submit to you. We do not make light of the Lord's grace and say, well, I'm saved by grace, and that just means I can live however I want. But neither do we say, well, I'm holy enough. I can come. I don't need grace. In fact, we recognize that God must work graciously to save and to sanctify those two come together, justification and sanctification. Listen to what Titus chapter 3 says. Again, a bit outside of the Lord's day, and yet connected to what we're hearing at the moment. Titus chapter 3. We read, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, giving us new life that we might see, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's newness of life. There's renewal by the Spirit. Washing, saved by grace, renewed by grace, reminded of the call to obey Christ who says, remember my death until I come again. Be nourished by the partaking of this sacrament. This is my body. This is my blood. Much could be said about that last phrase there in answer 82. The church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. What does that look like? Well, that's the content of the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we don't want to get into that tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think upon the sacrament and the wondrous invitation to come, we also reflect upon the required examination. We are not to come out of superstition or some mere custom, 
but that we are to reflect upon the sacrament that in it you nourish us. and By your spirit, you bring us up. You lift us up to Christ that we might, that we might become more and more like him. That we might live through his power. That we might go forth delighting in your word. Lord, that is what we pray. Help us, Lord, to desire you more, to love your word more. Help us not to be confused about what happens in the sacrament. The sacrifice has been made. Lord Jesus, your once-for-all sacrifice has been given that we might have assurance of eternal life as we trust in you. And now we are to go forth to live, to live in light of that truth. Guide us, O Holy Spirit, to that end, that you, the triune God, might be praised and glorified in our lives. Amen.